So this is Sunday morning, May 24th, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we thank the Lord to, uh, for our country to live in this free land and remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And let me pray for us as we start our study of the reign of life. We're so grateful, Lord, to wake up in a place where we didn't fear for our safety. Um, thank you. Thank you for this land. Thank you for your work in it. And thank you for Wallace Presbyterian and her members, her sons and daughters. And what a privilege this morning to come before you, to look at your word, understand ourselves in light of who you are and are in our battle with indwelling sin. Teach us and send your spirit to help us. Look to Christ and rest in Christ and with his uh, superabounding grace wage this war with indwelling sin. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me remind you to mute your mics, please. Thank you. And uh, might get a few ding-dongs here as we get going. Why are we doing this study? Because if you're in union with Jesus Christ by faith, that means you are no longer at war with sin. Excuse me, you're no longer at peace with sin and at war with God, but you are at peace with God and at war with sin. We all woke up this morning with a war within us. As Paul says, the spirit is waging war against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. And we're doing this study because you cannot win a war uh, if you don't understand the enemy. So the enemy is within we're trying to understand how the Bible describes the nature of indwelling sin. We're going to be using two handouts this morning. If you've been to the webpage, obviously you have to click on this link. But Chris has put up their handouts here and here. We are, if you click on the first here, we're on the next to last page. We'll finish that today. And then I'm going to go on and start a second handout on temptation which is clicking on the second here. I just want you to be aware that's where you'll find the material. You'll really want to be looking at it because you'll be lost without it. I'm just going to stream right through what I've written for you so you have all the goodies in front of you. So we're going to start with the first here. The next to last page will simply call attention to the fact that sin approves and seeks company with other sin. When Paul finishes that litany of sins uh, to which the Gentiles have given themselves to in Romans 1, he concludes this way. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Interesting statement. That we know in our heart of hearts sin deserves death, but the nature of sin is to hide that fact from ourselves. Though they know uh, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. We live in a just universe. All sin must be punished. The punishment of sin is death. They not only do them, but they give harder approval to those who practice them. In other words, join the company. Sin loves company. You, you could put it this way. Maybe when you were deciding what course you were to take when you were in high school or college, you heard the phrase, Everybody's doing it, it must be okay. Everybody's doing it, it must be okay. Uh, true confessions, everybody's going fast on the beltway right now. So I go fast with them. Everybody's doing it, it must be okay. 
Um, it can't be wrong. Of course, we never determine morality by counting noses, do we? We determine morality by what God says is righteous and true and just and holy and good. Okay, so that's the nature of sin. And then um, Paul says uh, towards the end of, of the, in the middle of 1 Corinthians 15, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. This is echoing what you see in the Proverbs. Proverbs says, don't go with a person given to strong drink. Don't go with a person given to anger. You're going to become, sin has a way of pulling you into its fear. Sin has a way of wanting you to join in its activities. So that's the point we're making there. That sort of finishes this litany of different things we know about sin. Just a couple of things to round out this handout in the, in the please note category. This handout doesn't tell us how to battle indwelling sin. We will get to that. Paul will get there in Romans 8.12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When we get there in our study, we'll unpack specifically what it looks like to fight indwelling sin and, and uh, focus on our adoption, because that's where Paul goes, and focus on the nature of idolatry. So that's coming. In the meantime, and I'll just round out this handout with a couple of things for you to consider. Consider A, Jesus' admonition about radical amputation, thinking on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jay Adams, the, the famous grandfather of Christian counseling, who started CCEF up there associated with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, called this the principle of radical amputation. You've got to get at the root of what's causing the sin and deal ruthlessly with it. More about that when we get to Paul's put off and put on uh, when we, uh, a little bit later in Romans, but I just wanted to call that to your attention. And then B, think of the, uh, James's admonition in James 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. What a magnificent promise. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, presumably over your sin. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. There's, a, there's obviously a place for regular repentance and regular grieving and regular lamenting over our sin. That, there's a place for that because of what our sin does to God and to others and to ourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Then I want you to know at the end of June, one of your ruling elders, Dory Kenyon, is going to come in and teach you from some study he's done, personal study in Colossians 3, 1 to 17, which fits our themes very nicely. Thank you, Dory, for agreeing to teach June 21 and 28. And then I'll close out this section with the words from a hymn that I learned from Indelible Grace Music, a hymn by Ora Rowan. Uh, this, this hymn writer writes this, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? See, idols offer us a kind of beauty. They offer us a kind of pleasure. The idols are idols. We're attracted to them because they're attractive. So this writer asks the question, What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? 
not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Translated, the law itself has no power to deliver you from the lore of sin. The law tells us what sin is. The law is a wonderful guide. We're going to see in Romans 7 how Paul loves the law of God. Psalm 119 celebrates the beauty and majesty and strength and benefits of the law of God. The law itself has no powers to strip from us the, uh, the power of our idols. Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth, i.e. the beauty of Jesus. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute, haste to bring, let his peerless worth constrain thee, crown him now unrivaled king. So this is one hymn writer's way of saying, captivated by the beauty of Jesus, desiring his glory is the only power on earth to deliver us from the passing pleasures of sin, from the allure of idols, from all that sin offers us. Uh, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, that we are being transformed um, as we are gazing upon the beauty of Christ. Transformed from one degree of glory into another. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So, more than that to come. Let's go to, click here, the second here on the webpage under my Sunday School class. And we're going to um, look at temptation. How can we study sin without understanding the nature of temptation? So we have a new handout. I'm going to work largely from Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, I'll read this for us, and then we're going to just tease this out in as much time as it takes. So, 1 Corinthians 10, skipping through the first five verses, and beginning at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes... Now these things that Israel, so many of the Israelites, fell, died in unbelief in the wilderness, these things took place as examples for us. So you know, we've got to sit up and listen. We've got to take a look at it. We've got to understand it. And Paul's going to help us do that. That we not desire evil as they did. What's temptation? Desiring evil, not what's good. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Notice by saying that he assumes his audience will be tempted by these things. And you probably know about ancient Corinth. It was a, a place of immense sexual debauchery. We must, so he's writing to an audience who's going to be tempted by these kinds of things. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So the core principle Paul's going to annex to the idea of being tempted by sin is idolatry. Sin is ultimately idolatry. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3. Doria will point that out when he talks about coveting as essentially idolatry. Okay, so first question, what principles undergird this text? If we sort of do a flyover all of the Bible 
and, and we say, are there principles that support this text that undergird it, biblical principles that frame it that aren't explicit here, but help us understand it? Obviously, I think the answer is yes. Here are at least four principles that undergird this text. Number one, the primary and best reason to obey God is God deserves your obedience. He's worthy to receive it. I'll often ask people uh, the question in, in marriage counseling, what's the best reason to work on your marriage? And you know, intuitively think, well, I'll be happy, we'll get along better, that's always good for me. No, the best reason to work on your marriage is the glory of God. That's a motive that transcends whatever's going on in my life, however I'm feeling, the glory of God. God is worthy to receive your obedience. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we get our minds in a frame of what is ultimately true, what is ultimately real, what is it that's at the center of reality, and therefore my life, and therefore my obedience, and that is the God-centeredness of reality God is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. It's the best reason to obey him. I love what Isaiah 43, 7 says. God says to his people, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you created, beloved? God's glory. Why did he make you? His glory. And we'll never ultimately be satisfied, we'll never ultimately be human until we are finding our heart's satisfaction in that fact. Living for God's glory. Sin would have us distracted, would hide that fact from us, would live for uh, inferior glories, and ultimately for our own glory. So every day is really a battle for whose glory will you live, your own or for God's. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2 and elsewhere, but here's just one example, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you. Right? Did you get the point? Encouraged, exhorted, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Let the way you live walk is the entire way you conduct your life. Thought, word, and deed. Let the way you conduct your life match the glory of God. Be worthy of God. Something God could put his stamp on. Something God could put his name on. Uh, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that invites you to ask, God has called me from darkness to light, from death to life, from captivity to Satan, to, to himself. What sort of kingdom has God called me to walk in? What is that kingdom like? It's a kingdom of grace and mercy. It's a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom inaugurated by a king of immense self-sacrifice. Right? Jesus has brought us into this kingdom through the agony of his cross and the glory of his resurrection. So it's a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of death death to self. It's a kingdom of other-centeredness. So just think about, okay, that's the kind of kingdom God has called me into. Where in my life am I missing that mark? Where am I overstepping those bounds? How is my life comporting to those kinds of glories and qualities? That's the first principle undergirding the text. The reason we obey God is he is worthy of our obedience. This is what brings glory to him. 
And related is number two, true humanity is defined by the creator, not the created. Only God has the right to say what it means to be human because we didn't create ourselves. We're not self-created. We are, there is a creator, and he's the one who tells us what it means to walk in a way that finds true humanity in this life. Someone is, uh, somebody needs to mute themselves. Check your mute buttons, guys. Uh, number two, uh, uh, um, Psalm 103, 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are, because He made us, we're His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Uh, one of the things I'll mention in my sermon this morning is this wonderful phrase in our text in 1 Peter uh, 2 9 that we are people for God's own possession. That is just so magnificent, so precious. I've decided to take a whole sermon next week looking at that one phrase. What does it mean to belong to God in Jesus Christ? Number three, third principle undergirding this text. If we look at the nature of temptation. Third principle, obedience is good for you. Obedience is good for you. Over and over again, the Bible places Blessing upon obedience. So Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who walks in the ways of the Lord. You're blessed if you walk in his ways. Psalm 112 verse 1, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The Bible sets this out to appeal to our sense of, what I really, do I really want to be happy? Do I want to be satisfied? Do I want to be fulfilled? Of course, I've got to be that on God's terms. But the Bible promises, this is the Beatitudes, how blessed, how happy are those who do this, this, and this. So the Bible appeals to our sense of what is right and good for us. Again, the first motivation, the glory of God. But secondly, um, uh, obedience is good for us. The Bible continues to, put, to put, puts that prospect out in front of us. We need that incentive, as it were, among others. And the fourth principle, and we'll take some time to tease it out this morning, is, that, that, is this. In order for life to work, something has to die. Where does the principle come from? Well, it's inaugurated, as you can see on the handout, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. God gave Adam and Eve all the trees of the earth except one. Enjoy everything. Go as far as you want. Enjoy every tree on the earth except one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, if you disobey, you will surely die. That's another way of saying sin will enter this pristine creation and death through sin. You'll cease to function the way I created you to, both spiritually and physically, so that Adam and Eve died physically, were going to die physically, that was never part of the plan, and they died immediately spiritually when they ate of the tree. <clears throat> so, life works if you put to death the desire to disobey God. You will thrive, in other words, only if you resist any resistance to God. That's, that's how you're going to find life. So there's the principle. It's inaugurated in the garden. In order for life to work, something has to die. That told Adam and Eve, uh, you guys should expect to be tempted in this. You should expect to have a rise in your heart or from some source, some desire to resist the will of God. Whenever you sense it, kill it. Put it to death. There's the principle inaugurated. In order for life to work, something has to die. As you know, it was tested in Genesis 3. Satan enters the garden with a lie about God's word. Has God said? 
So what's on trial in the garden initially is the veracity of the word of God. Has God said you shall not die? Can that word be trusted? So the essence of Satan's lie is God can't be trusted. He isn't good. It's really impugning the goodness of God. You must find happiness, Satan is saying, on your own terms, not God's. Implicit in Satan's temptation is this. You can sin without consequences. And so our fallen heart's impulse ever since Avani fell and we inherited that sinful nature, our heart's impulse is to distrust God and trust ourselves. We're all born that way. When Proverbs 22 talks about foolishness being bound up in the heart of a child, that's part of that foolishness. We innately, we tenaciously distrust God and trust ourselves. That's why it's so hard, humanly speaking, for people to come to faith. It, it, they find it difficult to trust God. That's why God's the one that has to give us the gift of faith. He has to create that trust in us. It just isn't there. So you should assume if, if, in, if indwelling sin is still in you, and it is, and you woke up this morning at war with indwelling sin, one of the things that is still in sin is a distrust of God and a trust of self. So you should expect to see those kinds of things want to rise up in your heart and uh, show their ugly faces. Uh, So therefore, look for a lie at the heart of sin. Every sin involves a lie. And you might add half-truths. There are often half-truths. So Janice and I love the Back to the Future movies, and we watched Back to the Future 3 the other day. And how does Back to the Future 3 end? Back to the Future 3 ends with Doc saying to Marty, Marty, your future hasn't been written. It's up to you to make it what it is. Which, you know, it's just, that's progressivism, right? You're your own interpreter. You have to be your own boss, the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate. So there's a kernel of truth in that. The lie is, no, there's a big God who's in control of your life. And God has a plan for your life. And it's a wonderful plan. If there's a God, then God is, out, is working out that plan. That's why the psalmist prays, fulfill your good purposes for me, Lord. The half-truth is, we are responsible before God. To walk with God. To walk responsibly with God. And to see that we are faithful stewards of the lives God's given us. The gifts God's given us. The resources God's given us. There's kind of a truth in that, right? My, my, my future is out there and I'm a responsible moral agent to do with time and opportunity and my life the things that would bring glory to God. But, but the lie is, my future's been written. God's numbered my days. God ordained the moment I was born. God has ordained the moment I will die. God's completely in control of that. I can put that to rest. And now, having said that, how do I live responsibly seeking to be a good steward of everything God has given me in my life? Okay, just, that's just an example of that. So look for the lies, look for the half-truths, and all of the kinds of things that are barraging you in the media and in entertainment. This is why the devil is called the deceiver, the liar, the destroyer, the murderer, the accuser, and the slanderer. These are the kinds of things you should expect from the devil. So no wonder that gives, uh, that gives meaning to what uh, Proverbs 3 says, how Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 5, if it's true that there's this, there's this thing in our hearts, an indwelling sin, an innate distrust in God and trust in self, 
No wonder, Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. He's saying that because that's your inclination. It's to lean on your own understanding. There's no inclination in us to trust in the Lord. That's what parents need to teach their kids. That's what we need to encourage one another with. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. How do you do that? In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. Trust God to ultimately direct your path tomorrow. Your job today is to acknowledge Him. Delight in his laws, etc. And then he, he, he says it, the same thing in different words. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Why does he tell us that? Because that is our natural inclination, to trust ourselves to be wise in our own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. The presumption is there, we're going to have evil along the path of life. We're going to be tempted with all different kinds of things. When we, when we see it, we turn away from it in the fear of the Lord, wanting his glory more than anything else. And here's this wonderful promise. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Okay, there is the principle. What's the principle? In order for life to work, something must be killed. We saw that's inaugurated in Genesis 2. The principle is tested in Genesis 3. And what are the principle's implications? For life to work, Adam and Eve, let's go back to the garden there, they needed to either kill the lie and the liar, the serpent. Why not club the serpent? How dare you come into this beautiful, perfect creation where we are enjoying unbridled fellowship with the Creator. We're knowing each other without sin. They couldn't put it that way because they didn't know what sin was yet. How dare you come in here with lies? Go to hell, devil! Right? That's what they should have said. They should have killed the lie or the liar. That was okay to say, I think. Thus exercising their God-given dominion over the creation. God gave them dominion over the creation. They either had to kill the liar or the only alternative, the awful alternative, was to kill the truth, God's word. And inexplicably, they chose to kill God's word. Satan dressed up sin in virtue's colors. It seems very virtuous to be the decider, to be our own interpreters, to be the master of our own fate, the captain of our own ship, self-governance, self-rule, self-endurance, indulgence, self-reliance, self-determination. It seems so appealing to us. Satan dresses up sin in virtue's colors and they bought the lie hook, line, and sinker. And that act, as you know, brought sin and death into the world. Romans 5.12, we saw this weeks ago, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Yes, Eve is the one who initially took, but Adam, as, as, as uh, the federal head of the race, is the one God uh, ultimately holds responsible for that decision. Presumably he was there, he was with her not defending her, not keeping her from giving in. So here comes the lie. What should they have done? Killed it. Kill the lie. Kill the liar. They didn't. Once sin entered the world, the principle is especially in force. For life to work, something has to die. It's true of you and me this morning. It's been true of every human being since Adam and Eve believed the lie. And as if to underscore the necessity, sin is personified as the enemy in the very next chapter, in Genesis 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door, presumably, you know, the door of your heart, as it were. Its desire is against you. You must rule over it. Sin wants to rule you. Sin 
we are slaves to sin until that monster has been defeated. And of course, if we're in union with Christ, it has. We're no longer slaves to that monster. It still wants to rear its ugly head, but for life to work, all of those desires must be killed. So now that sin is the world, what must be killed for life to work? Any resistance to the will of God. So let's tease out some implications of that. In God's moral universe, all behavior has consequences. You see this very graphically when you read through Deuteronomy and you see how God promises to Israel blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Uh, Terrifying. Read, read Deuteronomy 28. Well, the blessings are as breathtaking as the curses are terrifying. Here's one summary of it from Deuteronomy 30.15. Again, we're making the point, in God's universe, all behavior has consequences. Here's what Moses writes. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, and you really can't keep them unless you love them, then you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. What a promise! With obedience comes blessing. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you. Though that, this is the language of the covenant. Heaven and earth are the covenant witnesses to the, to the covenant that's being made. Heaven and earth are witnessing to this covenant agreement. God is entering into a covenant with his people. Covenants in the ancient Near East involve promises of blessing for obedience to the, to the king by the vassal servants and threats of curses for disobedience. And there were witnesses that signed the covenant. These covenants were cut with blood. This, the whole covenant arrangement is based on the ancient uh, uh, suzerain treaty document that studies we've seen over the last few decades. So, so Moses is calling on heaven and earth as the witnesses to this covenant arrangement. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that you, the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. So there's the incentives to obedience. Isn't God good? He doesn't say, obey me and just trust the results. He tells us exactly what we can expect from disobedience and obedience. Another way to put it is the way Paul puts it in Galatians 6. You reap what you sow. In God's moral universe, we reap what we sow. Paul writes Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, this he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I mean, you see how parallel these things are? I'm setting before you life and death. Choose life, not death. You choose, you choose disobedience, you're going to die. All these curses will come. Paul is saying the same things in slightly different terms. Jesus says, everything we do will come to light. Matthew 26.10 So have no fear of them. Nothing is covered 
that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's a good thing to think about. The, the, the sins we sin in secret, even the things we think. Jesus says, Every, everything's going to come to light. Would that stop me thinking about that from being tempted by sin? Next thing to point out, every sin incurs God's wrath. Exodus 34, 7. This will come up again in this morning's sermon. God reveals himself to Moses at Sinai. He reveals himself as a God who's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In this moral universe, every sin must be punished. That's what's staggering and liberating about the cross. If Christ died for our sins, all your sins went there, and with those sins, all the punishment do those sins. So on the strength of that, Paul can say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In this just world, you can never be condemned for your sins at Judgment Day if Christ was condemned in your place for those sins. Every sin incurs God's wrath. Proverbs eleven twelve. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. An evil person will not go unpunished. Be assured of that. Rest in that. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming soon, says Jesus, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. In this universe, everyone's going to be justly rewarded for what they've done. That will not be a judgment of condemnation for believers, but a judgment of rewards for what we've done for him. God notices, God cares, God will reward us. Stunning, amazing. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. Next thing to see, you can't kill God's life-giving word without killing yourself. Proverbs 13, 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. For he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. You're supposed to sit up, take notice of that, and think, okay, if I, if I break God's life-giving world, word, that has to bring death. It has to bring harm to me. So the next one is sort of a corollary to that. You can't break God's law without breaking yourself. Proverbs 10, 29, The way of the Lord is a stronghold for the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. So spiritual death means the reigning impulse of the human heart is self-rule and rejection of God and his rule. That's the reigning impulse of your heart. I want to rule myself. I don't want God ruling over me. This is why God calls Israel obstinate. They refuse to do things God's way and rebellious. You insist on doing things your way, right? Two sides of the same coin. Deuteronomy 12.8 You shall not do according to all that they are doing here, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. So where does that inclination, where does that proclivity come from? Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. This inbred self-trust and distrust of God. I'll be my own interpreter of reality. Thank you very much. Just leave me alone. I'll decide for me what is right and wrong. That's every man doing what is right in his own eyes. And you realize any culture that where people live that way ultimately ends up in chaos. Because if you do what's right in your eyes and I do what's right in my eyes, what is to constrain us from ultimately destroying each other? Because it must end up in the end that uh, it's survival of the fittest wins the day. I'm going to do what preserves my life at the expense of anything that gets in my way. So you t but here's what's tragic. You tend to hide that fact from yourself. Proverbs 14, 12. I think one of the most important verses in all the Bible. 
there is a way which seems right to a man. Seems right to me. Where does that come from? This inbred self-trust, distrust of God. There's a way, a way to live, a way of doing things, a way to think, a way to find happiness, a way to be fulfilled. There's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. For goodness sakes, how could this be wrong? Plus, everybody else is doing it. (laughs) There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. We deceive ourselves, and, and, and we do so with absolutely tragic consequences. Uh, let's see, where are we? We are down to Isaiah 29, 15. This, oh, so this is illustrated with the analogy of the potter and the clay. <clears throat> Isaiah 29:15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows? So sin has us kidding ourselves that because we get in a closed closet or because it's dark, God doesn't see. I mean, isn't that silly? Now, now that we know who God is, the t- darkness doesn't keep God from seeing things, but this is how sin would deceive us. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made save its maker. He didn't make me, so you're a piece of clay. There you are on the little spinning wheel, and the potter's been fashioning and forming you, and, and all of a sudden, uh, you, 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 uh, you, the piece of clay, you look up at the potter, and you go, you didn't make me. The absurdity of it. The irrationality of it. What do you mean I didn't make you? Of course I did. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. What piece of clay ever said to the potter, you have no understanding, you're just a piece of clay. Paul picks up on this in Romans 9. Okay, you see the absurdity and the irrationality of sin. Those are some of the undergirding principles in this text. The one we've been unpacking for the last bit of time is, in order for life to work, something has to die. That's in place for you and me every morning when we wake up. It's in place for every human being. Let's take a few more minutes here as we, as we uh, move towards our closing time to begin to look at some things we can infer from this text. So you look at the text before us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and following. What are some things we can infer? First, don't be surprised when you're tempted. A life of battling sin is assumed. James 3.2 We all stumble in many ways. I have 9.55. Is it 10 o'clock? I have a couple more minutes. Okay. So don't be surprised when you're tempted. Don't, don't be thrown like that. We all, we're, we're in a life of battling sin. We all stumble in many ways. Also assumed is you'll be overtaken by sin. When Paul writes in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man, he's allowing the fact that they've been overtaken by sin. That means we allowed sin to rule in the moment. We allowed sin to rule. Remember the verse that, that um, catapulted this whole study, Romans 6:12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. You're no longer a slave to sin. You used to be a slave to sin in union with Adam. Sin has been cut away. You're in union with Jesus Christ. You're indwelt by the Spirit. You're a new creation. But sin is still with you, trying to reassert its rule. 
It can't ultimately rule over you, but it's trying, and it's doing so through its passions, through its lusts. And Paul is simply acknowledging that it gets the better of us sometimes. We've been overtaken by it. We have allowed ourselves to sin. The beautiful thing is, in union with Christ, we no longer have to sin. We're not slaves to sin. There is power in us to say no to any temptation, any temptation, and not give in to it. But don't be surprised when you're tempted, number one. Number two, you'll be tempted by the same things that tempt everyone else. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you, but that is common to man. So I can never really say, Lord, I'm a special case. I'm the only person in the world being tempted by X, Y, or Z. No, we're all tempted by the same things. Number three, we're inferring from this text. You should expect to be tempted, so prepare and preempt with confidence God will supply an escape. So as you think about going into a situation that's particularly difficult for you, you're starting your day, you should expect to be tempted, you don't have to give in to that temptation. How can you prepare and preempt, if you're anticipating that temptation, confidence God will supply the escape? That's the promise of verse 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God's not going to take his hand off you and go, you're a goner, this temptation's going to come, you have no choice but to give in to it. Not true. That's a lie. God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. What do we read in that phrase, endure it? Number four, temptations may persist, but you must endure. So a temptation may come along briefly and go away, or it may continue to assault you. The point is, God is never leaving you. God is faithful. He is with you in the, by the power of his spirit to give you endurance through that temptation. I mean, think about the temptation of Jesus. It lasted a certain length of time in the wilderness with the devil. God's ways of escape are sufficient unto endurance that you may be able to endure it. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The English translators are very slow to translate uh, that prayer because in the, you know, over time it's just been deliver us from evil. But the Greek is ha penaros, deliver us from the evil one. If you ever hear Janice and me say the Lord's Prayer out loud at Wallace, we always say at that point, and deliver us from the evil one, because that's what the prayer is for, deliver us from the evil one. Uh, let's see, and let, let's close with number five. We should learn from the failures of others. Paul says, the reason he's writing this text, now these things took place as examples for us. You're reading through the history of Israel. You're seeing how they responded. You're asking God, teach me from that. Where was their lack of faith? Where's, where, where were they letting sin get the better of them? What can I learn from that? That's the whole, one of the whole points of this text. Okay, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll pick up next week right here with B6, It's Not a Sin to be Tempted. Okay? Thank you for joining us. Have blessed worship. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, thank you. Thanks, Mike.